Well, good morning. It is so good to have you here. Those of you in the room, those of you joining us online, uh, thank you for being with us. I want to give uh, just a, a minute uh, this, uh, today, this morning, uh, to report back uh, something that you were involved in a couple of weeks ago. As you know, if you've been around here, for the last 15 years, we've made a decision that on Easter weekend and the subsequent week, uh, that the monies that come in that week would be given away 100%, every single penny, uh, outside of the walls or the ministries of Cornwall Church to impact locally, nationally, and worldwide uh, efforts and, and um, you know, crisis relief and all kinds of different things we've done over these last 15 years. And, um, and two weeks ago, it was no different on Easter. Um, and I wanted to let you know what, what you did uh, over the last couple of years, just a little history. I think I've shared with you that it seems like every year it, it becomes our largest um, offering historically ever. And it's normally around, in the last few years, around $120,000. And then we give uh, all of that away. And, <clears throat> and this year, I would like to again say uh, it is the largest offering that you've ever done. Yeah. And, uh, but you went crazy this year. I mean, we're not talking like 120, 121, 120. This year you gave $168,000. And, uh, yeah, that's absolutely amazing. And just want to let you know, our commitment is over this course of this next year to steward that and to give every penny of that away outside the walls of our church. There's some things we're already thinking about as opportunities come along, the Holy Spirit leads us in some things, some crises that will no doubt happen in this year. This allows us to uh, go into action immediately because of your generosity. And I just want to say thank you so much. It is what a, an, an amazing thing of your generosity and your faithfulness and giving. And I know that God is going to bless many, many people because of that. I wanted to share that with you. So um, last week, <clears throat> we started a, a new series. Pastor Kip started us going from Easter until June, looking at selective psalms. And I just want to say this, as Pastor Kip shared last weekend, if you were here or saw it online, I am so grateful to be a part of a church where a pastor can stand up and share the brokenness of his life. And it, yeah, and it's accepted. And, and I want us, I want us to continually be a place where it's safe to say, here's where I am, and I'm a mess, but I'm looking for some help and some hope, and I find that in Jesus, and that we can come here and be transparent. And Pastor Kip started us off in a very vulnerable way, and just uh, so grateful for him, and the message, and I know how many people um, that that has impacted. And so we're going to continue on in this series looking at selective psalms. It's not the entire book. There's, there are 150 different psalms. If we took one a week, this would be a series that would go on for nearly three years. So we're, not, we're only doing six weeks, and uh, I always say, boy, we could go so much longer. In this one, no question about it. <clears throat> there are 150 different psalms in the book of Psalms, and in addition to that, there are some psalms in Scripture that are not in the book of Psalms. You'll find them some other places. I'll point one out here in a minute. And as Pastor Kipp said, they're written by various authors. We usually think of David, and, and rightfully so. I mean, he wrote 70-some of the Psalms. But they're also written by a guy named Asaph, by the sons of Korah. Uh, Pastor Kip talked about that last weekend. There's one written by Moses, written by a guy named Ethan. My favorite, there's a guy named He-Man uh, who wrote a psalm, Psalm 88, in his story. I wish I, I should have chosen that one for this series, maybe next time. Uh, an amazing thing. And not only are there different authors, and a lot of them are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. They're not attributed to anybody. 
And not only are there different authors, there's really different genres of psalms. And it depends on who you talk to. They might say, well, there's four different genres or seven or whatever. But there are psalms of, of ascent that they would sing as they would ascend to Jerusalem for the festivals. There are psalms of lament where they just pour out their heart. And this is the, probably the most common one, the psalms of, of lament. There are psalms that are prayers. There are psalms that are filled with thanksgiving and gratitude. There are psalms that are shouts of joy and praise because of how good it's going. And there are sh- psalms where there's just this crying out and anguish and pain and wondering, God, where are you? And there are psalms of repentance. And, and you see all these different things. And some of the psalms were created originally for like corporate use, the community in in a public setting, a liturgy that that the people of God would use these psalms. And some of them are very private and personal in a time of prayer, reflection of repentance or crying out. And in some of the psalms, if you look in your Bible, some of the psalms, before they start, there's like these little, um, little prelude, kind of just a little bit of information about it. Who wrote it, possibly? Or maybe, um, how it's supposed to be used. This is a prayer, or this is for the choir director, or this is for, you know, the people to sing. And sometimes they'll give musical notations, like to be sung to the tune of a doe in the morning, which sounds like a very tranquil tune. I I would imagine that one was played on a harp and, and a piano, but I don't know. Or to be sung to the tune of Lily of the Covenant. Ah, don't even know what that song is. And sometimes, and David does this, sometimes there's just a little bit of a snippet of what was the context that brought this song about? What was going on? What inspired this psalm? Psalm 51, some of you are very familiar with it, and we're going to look at it briefly next week. It won't be the, the, the primary focus. Psalm 51 is a psalm wrote when Nathan the prophet confronted him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. There was this relational breakdown, this mistake that was made, this confrontation. And in response to all that, he writes Psalm 51. There was a time when David feigned insanity, foaming at the mouth, pretending like he's a madman to get away from this guy named Abimelech. And in response to that, he writes Psalm 34. There was a time when Saul was chasing David, and he was hiding in a cave. And in all this, he writes Psalm 142. And there was a time when he escapes from Saul, and and, and he's he's free. And so he writes Psalm 18. And these are all notations. You see, like, David would have these relational breakdowns, these tumultuous relationships. And then in response to that, he would write a song. It's kind of a a Taylor Swift approach (laughs) to writing songs. You know, bad relationship, write a song about it. And, And David does that. And Jesus knew the Psalms. He grew up with these Psalms. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus quotes out of the book of Psalms more than any other book in the Bible. And as we saw a few weeks ago, while he's on the cross, he quotes two or three portions of Psalms. A few years ago, uh, Tim and and Kathy Keller wrote a a, a devotional book, 365-day devotional book. And the the title of the book is The Songs of of Jesus. And in that, they just go through a psalm or a portion of a psalm and give a little devotional thought for the entire year. In the introduction to that book, in these songs of Jesus, Keller writes these things. He says, we are not simply to read psalms, we are to be immersed in them so that they profoundly shape how we relate to God. They're not just poems, they're to They're to be immersed in, to be 
dove deeply into to, to soak in so that we know how to relate to God. We see how people relate to God. How do they relate when there is so much joy they can't contain themselves? How do they relate to God and how do they communicate to God when they feel like God has abandoned them or, or when the world has cheated them or, or when they've messed up profoundly or they're seeking God? We see this throughout the, the, the pages of the book of Psalms. This honesty of pouring out, crying out. We see how to relate to God in these times. Now, as I mentioned, there are some Psalms that are not in the book of Psalms. One of them is found in 1 Chronicles and the context for this is David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the movie, the, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, the big deal about this was it's not just a piece of furniture. It's not just a box. It represents the presence of God, and it represents the relationship. I will be your God. You will be my people. It was a big deal. So David's bringing it into Jerusalem, and he gives very clear instructions to musicians and to instrumentalists, and, and He-Man's one of them, and all these people, how to sing. I mean, it's a big parade. It's a big party. It's a big, big celebration. And as they're bringing the ark into Jerusalem, David is so filled with joy and, and the goodness of God and worship, he begins to dance. He obviously was not raised in the church that I was raised in, because that was strictly forbidden. Not only did he dance, it says he danced before the Lord with all his might. Oh, I would have loved to see that. I don't know what that looks like, but it's not this. That's a little two-step. That's a little white man overbite. That ain't not dancing before the Lord with all his might. That arms and legs and stuff going. I mean, he is a maniac, a maniac on the floor. He is dancing like he's never danced before. I mean, see that ark. Watch that scene. Dig it, the dancing king. And he comes dancing into town wearing nothing but a linen ephod. And his wife, Michael, is watching through the window, and she's not so impressed. He comes home, he's had his unbelievable day. He's on cloud nine. And Michael says, my, how the king has distinguished himself today. Your little dance, dance revolution. <laughs> and David says to her, you ain't seen nothing yet. But baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> and then he writes this song in 1 Chronicles Chapter 16. Now, I'm not going to read you the entirety of it because it's 30-some verses long. But he writes this, and look what he says of how we are to relate to God. First Chronicles 16. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and, and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he's pronounced. Look at all these actions here. Look at the verbs. Give thanks. Call on his name. Make known his deeds. Sing to him. Glory in his name. Rejoice. Look to the Lord. Seek his face. Remember his miracles. Tell of these things. This is how we are to live. Now, today what I want to do is I want to look at a psalm, and then this is a psalm that we don't know who wrote. It, it's anonymous. There's, there's not attributed to anybody. We don't know what tune it's supposed to be sung to, and we don't know any of the circumstances that surrounded it. It's this psalm 
But in this psalm, I think it's very important because it's kind of foundational for how we can approach the rest of the psalms. And because it's positioned in the very front of the book of Psalms, maybe that was the intention all along, that this would be one that we could look at and understand how then to read the rest of them. Psalm 1. Some of you are very familiar with this psalm. Psalm 1 starts off this way. Blessed is the man. It just starts off... This, I'm, I'm going to tell you about how you can be blessed, how to experience the blessed life, which immediately my thought goes to, there was someone else that started off something with this word blessed. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. There he is. He goes up on the mountainside. He sits down. He begins to teach them. And he starts off. He says, blessed. How lucky. How fortunate. This is the life that you want. And he goes through these beatitudes. This is the path to the blessed life. And what's amazing about what Jesus did in the Beatitudes is while it's this blessed life that he is telling us about, it seems to be completely contrary to everything the world would say to do to get a blessed life. In fact, it's kind of contrary to everything we think about having a blessed life. When he would say things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are, are the meek, blessed are you when you're persecuted. And here the psalmist starts off and says, blessed, and he does the same thing. He tells us about the blessed life, but it seems to be contrary to what the rest of the world says is the path to the blessed life. Now, interesting thing about Psalm 1 is that it's not a prayer, but a reflection. And in this psalm, he gives some instruction, and whether it's because this writer of this psalm has incredible wisdom, which he does, or because he has some life experiences that he wants us to learn from, or both because of his life experiences, he has his wisdom and he's passing it on. He gives in this, this very short psalm kind of this condensed life hacks on how to live the blessed life, how, how to go about this. And he says, I just want to lay out for you the path to the blessed life. If you want to live the blessed life that you were created to live, I want to tell you the path to that. And the path is one of avoidance and of action. And maybe that's not even stated right, because he really talks about more, there's, there's two paths. And one of the paths is to be avoided, and one of the paths is to be pursued. They're two different paths. They have two different destinations. You can't go down this path and expect to end up at that destination, and you can't go down this path and expect to end up at this. They both are different. One of them, he says, stay off this path. Avoid this path. Don't go down this path if you want to live the blessed life. Now, for some of you, that's all it takes for you to say, I best check out that path. Because I know how you are. You see a door that says danger, keep out. And your first thought is, how can I get behind that door? There's something I need to find out about. Over now, why do I know this about you? Because I'm a little bit like this as well. I don't know if you've ever been to Maui. There's a place called the Road to Hana. Beautiful road, windy road to Hana. And when you get to the seven sacred pools, every sign, every brochure, every website, and especially your rental car agreement says, at this point, turn around and go back the way you came. Don't take the back way over to Wailea. Do not do that. In fact, if you have a rental car, they forbid you to do that. And I'll just caution you, they now have GPS trackers on your car. So... So we went down to the road, of Han, road to Hana, and we got to the seven sacred pools and saw the signs and knew all the websites, and I was driving, and they said, well, should we go back? I said, we're going to take the back way. Now, now, I was not in a rental car. I was in my friend's 30-year-old Aerostar minivan. <laughs> and they tell you why not to take the back road. 
because the road is not well maintained. It's bumpy. There's not a whole lot to see. There's no gas stations. You have a problem. You're stuck in the middle and the cell service is minimal. So let's go. So we got in the thing, and sure enough, everything they said was true, and more. We came around one corner, and there was a man selling coconuts. I know he will be on Dateline one of these days. He had to have been a serial killer. <laughs> so we got through this thing. We got over to Wailea, and every bolt that had been loose on this Aerostar had now fallen off. <laughs> our, our, our fillings needed to be re reestablished here. But we did it. I did it, because we got to do that. Now, some of you are that way. I got to find out for myself. But the psalmist is saying this path you go down is more than just a bumpy path with no self-service. We're talking about your life, and I'm telling you, either from experience or wisdom or watching others, avoid this path. And he says, this is the path you want to stay off if you want the blessed life. Verse 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. You see the progression First you're walking, then you stop and you stand, and then you sit down. Going to check it out, going to try it out, going to settle in. So that's what happens on this path. You think, oh, there, there's, I'm just going just to kind of check it out. I'm just going to try it out. I'm just going to kind of sit in here. Just kind of walking in the counsel of the wicked. The counsel of the wicked is the things that are contrary to the word of God, the, the way of thinking, the attitudes, the values, just kind of checking this out. Now, the truth is this. We live in a world that is inundated with the counsel of the wicked. You can't avoid that. But it's when you start contemplating, hmm, I wonder if there's, I wonder if I should, I wonder, well, maybe, and that's walking in this counsel. You begin to have this influence your thinking. Change your values, your perspective, your mindset, your approach. And then, and then you say, well, I'm going to stand in, in the way of sinners. I, I'm going to try this out. I mean, <laughs> I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. You know, Billy Joel wasn't all wrong, right? Sinners have much more fun. Only the good die young. So I'm, I'm going to try this out. You know, I'm just, I mean, I, I can stop anytime I want. I just, I, just want to, I just want to see what this is like. And then we sit in the seat of scoffers. Scoffers. This blatant disregard for God's word, his way, and his will. I've got this figured out. I know what God's word says. I know something better here. Now it's not just checking it out. Now it's not just trying it out. Now it's becoming more of a pattern, more of a lifestyle, more of a habit. And we're here. I'm sitting in this spot. And I'm in control. John Stott said this. He said, the essence of sin is when you put yourself where only God deserves to be. Like in the driver's seat, the captain's chair, the throne of your life. That's the essence of sin. It's the pride that says, I know better than God. My will is better than your will. My way is better than your way. I'm in control. I'm on this throne of my life. Let's be honest right now. For most of us, our biggest regrets, our most painful memories, our deepest scars came because we or someone else walked in the counsel of the wicked, stood in the way of the sinner, 
and sat in the seat of mockers. We know what we've done. We know when things have been done against us because of that. I mean, what does the writer of Proverbs say? There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. That old quote, and I don't even know who, who said this, but sin will always take you farther than you intended to go, keep you longer than you expected to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. I mean, we make our decisions, then our decisions make us. Listen, if you don't believe me on this one, you talk to anyone who struggles with addiction, is working through recovery, they'll talk about, yeah, it was just a thought, then it was just, I tried it, and it just was okay, and it was fun for a while until it wasn't. And then it wasn't me doing these things, it was these things doing me. And he says, listen, you can avoid that. If you want the blessed life that you were created to live, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Not that path. Don't stop and try it out and stand in the way of sinners. And don't get so comfortable where you sit in the seat of mockers. And then he gives a contrast. He says, instead, if you want the path, let me tell you the path. Verse 2, he says, but, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, I highlighted three words there, the delight, the law, and the meditation. I wanted to look at those, and not necessarily in that order. But this, this law of the Lord, and, and on this law that we're meditating, the law of the Lord, and we start thinking, law, oh, that must be the Ten Commandments. Well, yeah, but that's not just exactly what he's talking about here. And some of you know, know the Old Testament law enough to know that it wasn't just Ten Commandments. There were actually 613 commandments, that 365 prohibitions, and 248, like, directives and it wasn't just that. And some of you know that the first five books of Pentateuch are referred to as the law. And you say, was that what he's talking about? We just got to immerse ourselves in Leviticus? Oh, seriously? That's a blessed life. I don't want it. I think there's more to it than that. When he uses the word law, it's, it's more comprehensive. He's talking about um, all of God's word, Scripture. The wisdom, of the, the, the full preponderance of God's word. I mean, yes, there's the law and there's the history books and there's the wisdom literature and there's, and there's the prophets. All of these things. To have those and to have those as a part of, of our lives. Because God's word will guide us and provide for us. It'll direct us. It'll guard us and it will protect us. It will warn us and correct us. Uh, what does it say in Psalm 119? Which, which, by the way, Psalm 119, longest psalm in the whole Bible. This is one, by the way, this would make for a very long sermon. I'm not doing Psalm 119. You're welcome. But in Psalm 119, the whole thing is about God and his word. And he says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. God, your word shows me how to live, how to believe, how to think, how to act, how to behave, how to relate to others, how to love you, how to become more like Jesus. Your word does that for me. In Psalm 19, Psalm 19 is one of my favorites. We're not going to study that one either. But in that middle of it, he gives this little, this little um, kind of uh, rapid fire litany of talking about the word of God and an assessment of its quality and the impact or the effect it has on our lives. Where he says, the law of the Lord, here's the assessment, is perfect. 
Here's the impact. Reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant. Giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever, and the ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. He says, listen, if you want to know how to build your life, build your life on this truth that is tried and tested and has not failed. Listen, there's all kinds of philosophies and knowledge and wisdom that comes and goes and gets outdated. The stuff that scientists believed, that doctors believed 20 years ago, 15 years ago. It's outdated. It always changes. But the word of God remains the same. Isaiah 40, I think, verse 8 says, the, gra the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You want to build your life on something that's solid? Take something that's been around for a few thousand years and has never been proven wrong and has always delivered. That's what you build your life on. It's the law of the Lord. And he says, and meditate. He meditates on the law. On this law, he meditates day and night. Now, if you're like me, you hear the word meditate, and all kinds of things come to mind. Yoga. I, no. Hot yoga. Oh, yeah, okay. Never mind. And maybe it's mindfulness or um, kind of a relaxation technique, or maybe it's being one with the universe, or maybe it's emptying your mind. But when the Bible talks about meditate, it's different. This whole idea of to meditate is to fill and to consider, to fill your mind with something and to consider something, to ponder it, to think about it, to focus your thinking on something. When it says on your law, I will meditate, it's not about emptying your mind. It's about filling your mind and focusing your thinking on God's truth, on God's word. And some of you say, well, yeah, I just, I don't know. The meditation thing, it seems weird to me. I don't know what, to, I'm just, just going to stay away from that. Can I tell you something? Most of you meditate all the time anyway. Because if you know how to worry, if you have ever worried in your life, that's negative meditation. Worry is when you're thinking about something, you're preoccupied, it's on your mind constantly, you wake up thinking about it, you go to bed thinking about it, you wake up in the middle of the night and it's like, oh yeah, and you're just worrying about this. That, that's meditation. He's just saying, I'm telling you, quit worrying and start filling your mind, thinking about preoccupied, waking up, going to sleep with something else on your mind. Focus your mind and your thinking on the truth of God's word. To fill your mind and, and all these things. That will change your life. Romans 12 says, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, the way you think, the things you focus on, the things you dwell on, the things you meditate on. I, I love, and I, I know that whoever wrote Psalm 1 would have been very familiar with Deuteronomy 6. Whether he tied those things together or not, I'm going to. He, as a good Israelite, would have known Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. They would have prayed it every morning and every night. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember these commands that I instructed you. And then it goes on to say, talk about them. When you sit down, when you walk along the road, when you lay down, and when you get up, talk about them. Hmm. Walking in the council, standing in the way, sitting in the seat. Don't do that. 
but on the commands of the Lord as you walk, as you sit, as you lie down. Why don't you let this be what guides your life? Last weekend, Pastor Kip made a very clear point. I mean, he was very clear. Scripture memory is this great gift that we ought to all embrace to fill our hearts and our minds with God's word so that when those times of anxiety or depression, that at least we can come to that, that word of God. This is um, something that I, I love to, to memorize God's word, and I, and I don't want to do it just to have memories, uh, you know, and have, could win the Bible quizzing contest or something. But I want to tell you something, and, and I hesitated telling this because I don't want it to be like, oh, look at me, I'm all that spiritual, because I'm not. But there's a practice that I engage in, I think, pretty much every day. And it's when I go to bed at night, and I lay down, and I close my eyes, and at that point, I just go over a scripture that I am memorizing or have memorized. Because I want that to be the last thing that goes through my mind as I drift off to sleep. And what's amazing, depending on the, the length of the passage, is sometimes as I'm going through this passage, as I'm rehearsing these words, as I'm thinking about these words, before I ever get to the end, I fall asleep. And if I don't fall asleep, I might go back and go through it again, slowing down, thinking about what they mean, or I might try a different passage, and just, just to feel, so that all night long, the last thing I put into my mind is the Word of God. And what if we just began to do that? Just fill our minds. So he says, the law of the Lord, and, and meditate. And then he says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight. Because some of you right now are going, oh, I've got to read the Bible. Oh, I've got to memorize it now. Bob says, I've got to go to sleep with it. Oh. It feels like this drudgery, this duty, this legalism. Stop, 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 stop. That's not it at all. He delights himself in the law of the Lord. That's the desire. That I don't do this because I have to. I do this because I want to. And maybe it's even starting off saying, God, I want to want to. I don't. I'm honest enough to say, I don't want this, but I want to want to. And there's a really clear mark of maturity in our spiritual walk. It's when we increasingly pray the prayer Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. We try to sit in the driver's seat and say, you know what, not my will, your will be done. Psalm 40, verse 8, he says, I delight, I delight to do your will. And back to that Psalm 19 passage when he just extols all the virtues of God's word. He says, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. And by them, that's these commands of the Lord, the ordinances of the Lord, the, the, the precepts of the Lord. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. Great reward. That Psalm 119, he says this. I rejoice in following your statutes as one re who rejoices in great riches. I desire this, God. I want to know your truth. I want to follow your path. I want to experience the blessed life that you created me to live. So he says, hey, here's the deal. If you want to be blessed, this path, walking in the, in the counsel of the wicked and standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of mockers, that is not going to lead to the blessed life. But if you delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on that day and night, and then he paints this beautiful metaphorical picture of what this life looks like. He says, the one who does that, the one who walks down this path, 
He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in season and whose leaf never wither, does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Boy, if I had time, there's a parallel uh, passage in Jeremiah 17. Oh, just write that down and look for it on your own. Oh, I wish we had time for that. He says, this is a And you remember now, this guy probably lives in the arid parts of Judea where it's just, just dark, desolate. Just, I mean, like eastern Washington bad. <laughs> Sorry. It's just desert. It's just brown. And then occasionally there'll be like a spring or a string and then stream. And, and there's these trees that are, that are alive and they're, they're vibrant and, and their, their leaves are, are not wilting in the heat and in, in, the, in the arid region and all of that. And he says, this is the life that I'm calling you to live. This is the blessed life. It's a life that is thriving and flourishing. It's, it's a, life that is, a life that is fully alive and you can live that life. It's what you were created to live. Usually at the end of a sermon, I'll say, Here, here's how I want us to, I want to challenge you this week. I, I want to, this is not the end of the sermon, <laughs> but I want to give you the challenge. Some of you are already doing this, but those who are not, I want to challenge you this week to start spending some time in God's word every day. Doesn't have to be an hour. Doesn't have to be 15 minutes. It might, be, it might be reading a psalm a day and just thinking about what does that psalm mean? Just to start having God's word as a part of your life every single day. This is why we want you to read scripture on your own, to study it, to be in a small group, to be in a quad, to, to dig in, to memorize it, to learn, and to apply these things because this is the path to the blessed life, to this life that is flourishing. And then he gives a picture the contrast of this life that went down this other path. You know, the path that walks in this council and stands in this way and sits in this seat. Since this path lead, your life will be like a tree that is flourishing. And he says, not, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. All they are is dust in the wind. This could have been a musical. This whole sermon could have been a musical. All right. Sorry. Some of you are going, really? You weren't born in the, raised in the 70s. Come on. All right. Therefore, he says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. They stand in their way, but when they stand before a holy God, they've got no foot to stand on. They're guilty. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. They're cut off. And in verse 6 at the end, he says... And they will perish. Here's what's amazing. This psalm has been around for 3,000 years. And for 3,000 years, it has never been proven wrong. And today, it is put before us, and we have to decide. Which path, which life, which outcome will I choose? And that's a beautiful thing. But I want to take just a couple minutes because there's another beautiful picture underneath this psalm that you may not see at first glance. This was first pointed out uh, by my friend Mike Woodruff. Mike uh, used to be here in Bellingham. He's a pastor in Chicago. And I also heard Alistair Begg um, kind of expound on this whole idea that in Psalm 1, there's not only this two paths, there's all that, but there's a picture of the gospel, the picture of the good news 
of Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one, only one, who ever perfectly fulfilled this Psalm 1, 1 through 2. He's the only one who never walked down that path. We've all taken a stroll down that path, some farther than others, but we've all taken a stroll down that path. Jesus is the only one who's never walked in the counsel of the wicked, never did. Never stood in the way of sinners. Never sat in the seat of mockers. He always delighted in the law and on his law meditated day and night. Jesus is the only one who has perfectly fulfilled these words, which sets him up to be this life of incredible flourishing tree, you know, planted by streams of water, which is true. But here's the gospel, that the only one who's ever perfectly fulfilled it chooses to become chaff so that we can become this tree that is flourishing and alive. In Isaiah chapter 53, we see this picture of the suffering servant, the suffering uh, Savior. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Earlier, I quoted John Stott when he says, the essence of sin is when you put yourself where only God deserves to be. He would go on to say, and the essence of salvation is when God puts himself where we deserve to be, on the cross. Jesus becomes the chaff so that we can have a life that flourishes like a tree planted by streams of water. Jesus becomes cursed so that we can have the blessed life. Jesus is condemned so that we can become the righteousness of God. Jesus is cut off from the living so that we can be adopted into the family of God. Jesus died so that we could live. It's in Christ alone, the beauty of the gospel that allows us to have this incredible life. So blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit and whose leaves never wither. And whatever he does prospers. Some of you are going, oh, cool, prosper. Hold on there. Prosperity as opposed to disappointment in life. And when I say that, I, I love... It comes from John Ortberg, and I think in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, when he says, when we choose to go our way, when we choose to go, we miss the life we were appointed to live by God. And we are disappointed in life because we aren't living the life we were created to live rather than this blessed life. Some of you know this to be true. And I just want to tell you, I have a friend who gets this, this passage and 
He understands the gospel. He understands grace. Understands it's not by works, like I got to do all this and earn my way. He understands. He's saved by grace. He lives in grace. He extends grace like everywhere. And I have, I have watched his life for decades. And he is like this tree. I mean, solid, always just flourishing, fruitful life. For 25 years, I've had a front row seat to watch him live these words. And I want to bring uh, him and, and his wife as well uh, out onto the platform. Uh, Pastor Randy, some of you know Pastor Randy and Pam are, are with this morning. Some of you know why they're, they're coming out here beside the fact that they are my, my living example of Psalm 1. Here they are. My, my illustration, yeah. But. Randy and Pam came into my life about 25 years ago. They, they came to, to our church, and I was this uh, young pastor, younger in yeah. those days, um, <laughs> young pastor, and, and they became a part of our church. And then, uh, and, and we were shocked when we asked Randy if he would join our pastoral team, and, and he did. And, and for 25 years, their lives have impacted, I mean, so many lives, my life, my family's life. It's just amazing. And, and I've always said Randy is, I mean, he's like, like the keel of a sailboat. Most people never see the keel. It doesn't get a lot, of, a lot of time. But the keel gives stability and keeps the boat from capsizing. If for the last 25 years this church hasn't gone upside down, it's because of, well, God and Randy, okay? <laughs> I mean, he's been like this, this stability, this keel. And for 25 years, and he's not retiring because we're not using that word. Um, but today is his last day on our staff, and Randy wanted a moment, and I want to pray for them, but Randy, you can share. Oh, thank you. Um, wow, 25 years. Who would have thought that July 1, 1997, when I came on the staff, uh, I'd be standing here 25 years later um, on the staff. It has been a rich, remarkable journey. And um, I, I, I want to thank a, a few groups of people. First of all, I want to thank Pam um, and our family. Uh, you know, this calling to be a pastor is not just a personal calling. It's a family calling. And so in, in terms of the support, the love, the sacrifice that they've made each step of the way, um, I, I wouldn't be standing here today without them. I'm also so grateful for the pastors and the staff and the volunteers that I've had the privilege of serving with um, over the last 25 years. Remarkable group of people, not only gifted, but very passionate about their areas of ministry, passionate for Jesus and passionate for you, um, the body of Christ at Cornwall Church. And so that's been an incredible, um, rich part of the journey too. But, but the other is our Cornwall family. We have experienced, you've invited us into some of your highest highs and celebratory moments, from baptisms to pre-marriage to weddings uh, to child dedications. Uh, it just goes on and on in terms of the celebrations that we've been able to be a part of over the years. But we've also um, had the privilege of um, meeting many of you in the midst of some of your most challenging moments. Uh, the counseling appointments, the hospital visitations, um, the memorial services, um, that's all a part of life, right? From birth to death and all that takes place in between. And so the privilege of being able to f be with you in the midst of that has been remarkable. Some of the most courageous people that we've met along the way. 
have been ones that have faced their greatest darkness, their greatest woundedness, their, their greatest scars, and have discovered in Jesus the redemptive nature of not just the fact that he saves us, but he keeps saving us, making us new, transforming us with his love. And to, to see um, and experience many of those people walk through incredible pain and then not only be transformed, but even use that pain to then minister to others. It's been a remarkable, remarkable journey. And you have inspired us. You've inspired me as well. So thank you for, for that. Um, in terms of next steps for us, some folks have asked, uh, we, we don't know. <laughs> we are going to take the better part of the summer and just kind of be and um, experience soul care and rest and lots of family time um, and a little bit of travel. Um, but the thing that I know about life, and especially in relationship with Jesus, is as long as I'm drawing breath, as long as we're drawing breath, we were created to make kingdom impact. So what that will look like for us going forward will be different likely than it's been in the past, and so much of it is likely to be in the community. The truth is, I've envied many of you for the last couple of years in particular, because you spend an hour here, and in our, our moments together, we have the ability to encourage and equip you and then send you out into a community that is longing for, dying for hope. And you've had the opportunity day in and day out to live for Jesus, to reflect Jesus, to the community around us. And so we hope to do the same. It may include private practice. It could ins include some um, uh, uh, spiritual, being a spiritual director. It, it, it likely will include some soul care events um, that I'll participate in and lead. Um, and um, we'll volunteer. There's nonprofits. There's the Bellingham Public School. We'd love to serve. So we'll see where God leads. But we're hoping over the course of the summer um, for his direction and for his guidance in that too. So if you'd like to pray for us, um, it'd be wonderful. But thank you so much, Cornwall family, for the incredible journey. Yeah. Why don't you, yeah, yeah. Well, join me now as we pray for Pam and Randy. Father, we're so thankful for our brothers and sisters. And Lord, for, for Randy and for Pam, the partnership in ministry, the friendship in life, to journey together through highs and lows. What a gift. And God, we're so thankful for the, the impact that they've had. And so many of us could stand up here and give story after story of how they influenced. Lord, I know how they have shaped my thinking and, and my understanding and, and my expression and, of grace. And, and Lord, just the way that, that I'm a, a different, better Christ follower because of their life. So, Father, I thank you for the years that they've served, and I thank you for the years ahead of them that you have planned, the things that you've ordained already as they discover those and walk in obedience. Thank you that they have chosen this path of the blessed life following your way and your will, your word. So, God, I pray that they would just have many, many years of fruitfulness and joy and satisfaction in their marriage, in their family, in this community, in the opportunities that you place before them and to know that their lives have made such a huge impact all for your glory. And we pray this in your name. Amen.
Love you guys.